Bob Metz and Jeff Schlemmer join me in the studio now for our regular Wednesday feature at Left, Right, and Center. Nice to see you both. Hi, Jim. And you. Let me ask you, too, uh, given the criteria that we set for, uh, for our callers, the most influential, the most important, the most inspirational Canadian. Uh, Jeff, I'll ask you first. Who do you think you'd pick? And I, I know that it's, it's tough because you can probably come up with a half a dozen, but is there anyone that, uh, if the, you're pressed to the wall, that you would, whose name you'd put up? Well, it may be that uh, with the passage of time, I, I don't know the facts as well, but it seems to me that John A. Macdonald has got to be a guy who's got to be right up there, that uh, as a father of Confederation, that uh, he hung in there for a long time, sort of through thick or thin, got the railway built. Uh, you know, without him, uh, we probably wouldn't have a country. Good point. Good, a good choice. Bob? Well, I, I would have to agree with, with your assessment earlier, Jim. I would certainly, without doubt, pick uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau. Um, I have to admit that during the 70s, I was a big Trudeau fan, although today I realize that he literally reversed the direction that this country was, in effect, mm -hmm. based on. So, you know, for, for the person who admires Trudeau, you can, you can admire someone that you disagree with mm -hmm. fundamentally in philosophy. Mm -hmm. And uh, Trudeau gave us a Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which basically set the country on a totally opposite course in our whole legal history. Mm -hmm. it, it almost basically upset the Magna Carta, if you want to go mm -hmm. back that far. So in terms of the criteria, um, who, who's influencing us to m the most today and what consequences do we have to live with, I would say Pierre Trudeau. I just can't see yeah, any he, other person. He was the clear winner among our callers, too. I haven't totaled them up, but he had, uh, I don't know, eight or ten, I guess, out of the 40-some some odd calls. We had maybe more than that. Uh, gentlemen, today, um, I wonder with uh, the changes that we're facing here in our police uh, situation in London with the resignation of uh, Chief Fantino and after seven years moving on to another challenge, a new challenge, and Jeff, given that you sit on the police services board. Used to. Used to. And uh, Bob, given you have a great interest in, in this area of, mm -hmm. our, of our society, I wondered if we could maybe chat a little bit today, and I don't know whether you guys are, are at odds on this, but whether we could chat a little bit about the role of police in our society. And let me set it up by saying that whether we realize it or not, the role has changed significantly over the last few years for a variety of reasons, uh, the Charter being one of them. But also funding has changed the role of police officers. There was a time when, when we expected if you picked up the phone and called for a police officer within a reasonable period of time, which might vary a little bit depending on how busy they were, but within a reasonable period of time an officer would attend for everything from a cat up a tree to, uh, to a, a domestic dispute to a car accident uh, to a break and enter. Uh, we no longer expect that in our society and because we don't, we, we're not going to get it. We know we're not going to get it. Um, the role of the police has been changed. It seems to me there's more of a focus on crime prevention, perhaps, than there used to be. And there is more of a focus on utilizing limited resources as effectively as they can manage to do that. And that varies from force to force to force. But I'm sure if you talked to the average Londoner of 50 years ago and said, here's a scenario for you, Fifty years from now, you phone a police officer because somebody broke into your house, and uh, they probably won't even come out to see it. They'll take the details over the phone, and that'll be that. If you have an accident and no one is seriously injured, but you could have some fairly serious property damage, chances are no police officer will attend. Um, if you have a dispute with your neighbor and you phone the police, they will come, but it might not be in a hurry. Uh, if you have a domestic dispute, they will likely be there just as quickly as they can. Um, all of these things would be significantly different from the priorities assigned, say, 50 years ago in our community here. And, uh, Jeff, uh, given your, your service on the police services board, did, am I right in my uh, characterization? Do you think we really have changed that way? Yeah, I think there's been a dramatic change, and you're right that uh, 
things that I always associated the police as doing that they don't do anymore, like coming out to accidents if there's not a personal injury or like a routine uh, break and enter of a house uh, that they, they just are, are stretched too thin to do that. Uh, and it seems as well like the police have really grappled over the last decade or so with this community-based policing and the idea of trying to get out of their cars. I think that when they when they became mobile, that was a big uh, move forward for them. And uh, I, I'm aware that with London, that uh, when something happens in London, um, the police officers come from all over the city. They race to where the where the problem is, and they really focus their their uh, resources in that way. And if you didn't have radios and didn't have cars, you couldn't do that. On the other hand, there's been a lot of uh, concern over the last decade or so again that uh, with police being in their cars like that, they're not out and ha- having their sort of finger on the pulse of the community. They're not sort of plugged into what the issues are in the neighborhoods. They don't know the people in the neighborhoods, the shopkeepers, and so on. And that that's taken something significant away from the police. So they're really grappling with that. Bob, what's your perspective on the police today? Well, I still have the traditional perspective, I'm afraid to say. I still think it's the proper role of police to protect life, liberty, and property, and to protect those three things from physical force, fraud, or harm from other people. Um, As police, you know, as policing, quote, um, pulls back from some of these traditional functions, as as Jeff says, they might not show up for a break and enter, they may not show up for for an accident report. expectations certainly change but i think that we shouldn't just settle for lower expectations i think that's the area where we should see more policing um what concerns me most is that is the laws that police have to enforce and the, the more laws you have you know there's an old saying I, I forget i think a roman emperor said it you know the more corrupt the government the more laws you have mm. um and when you have too many laws especially those that start getting into social engineering and the police have to enforce those uh, I think that hurts everyone. I think it hurts the proper function of the police. It gives them a bad reputation, and it hurts society at large. Now, what kind of social engineering is are the police um, required to support her? Well, anything from uh, carrying out on human rights legislation decisions to, uh, for example, I know a lot of people will disagree with me on this, uh, uh, for example, drug laws. I think uh, in the United States, for example, one in three people in jail is there because of a, of a nonviolent drug offense. Mm-hmm. I mean, that to me is, is totally an abuse of what police are all about. Well, again, if you go back 50 or perhaps 75 years in this country, the percentage of uh, that percentage was negligible yes. among our pr- prison population. And many people would ask, uh, you know, are we any less, are we any more safe today that we have all of these people in jail? No, we're, I'd say we're worse in many respects. But and the police end up with, with the unhappy task of enforcing a lot of these laws. That, yeah, uh, and I'm sure know, that they're, they're just, not happy with it all. Yeah, they've gone too, in so many more directions than they used to go. Mm-hmm. But many of their spokespeople do speak in favor of always more and more police powers. This is this is what concerns me a great deal. So, so, so often we tie the police hands in in the proper investigation of what I would consider uh, you know capital crimes mm-hmm. and, and murder and mm-hmm. rape and all that stuff, and then we give them these undue incredible powers to just walk into anyone's house for searching for a little bit of marijuana or something like that. How how is that suddenly possible? Let so. me ask both of you about the funding issue because it has been a contentious issue in our city. One of the one of the uh, both pluses and minuses, depending on your viewpoint, on Jillian Fantino has been that he has been very loud uh... and very forceful about his uh... request for more money every year he's not towed the zero increase line he's not done that he hasn't played that game um, he also i think to his great credit has not has been very clear not to threaten the people of london and say if you don't give me the money you're all going to hell in a handbasket he's made the point very clearly every year that if you expect me to do a i need b to do it if I don't get B, we'll still do our best. But if you really want me to do it, I've got to have B if you want A. 
and I think he, he deserves full marks for that. But the, the, the fundamental underlying reality is that, that we don't, I don't think anyway, we don't have enough police officers in this community. And anybody who doesn't believe that, phone one to come attend at a B&E or phone one to come and attend at a car accident. Well, They're not there. Yeah, we've right. got about 400 for a population of almost 400,000. Yeah. yeah, it's just not enough. And he's made the point very, very uh, clearly and repeatedly. There are certain people in our community, and Morris Dallacosta is one of them, who have said very, very forcefully and publicly that now is the time to slash police budgets because crime is down. Um, I want to ask each of you to respond to that. Uh, given the realities of policing today, do we put unreasonable expectations on them given the amount of money we spend? And Jeff, again, you've had to deal with the police budget. What do you think? Uh, yes, I think we do, and, and I don't think that it's uh, practical to uh, to say you lower budgets because crime is down. Um, and I know what Julian would say is that, well, the reason crime is down is because we're spending this money. If we don't spend the money, crime will go up again, and you'll spend it again in other ways. But uh, th there are so many diverse demands uh, made at the police nowadays, and uh, I think that uh, one of the things that Julian was very effective at was going out and sort of sampling public opinion. He would come out and say this, that, or the other thing about here's what I'm going to need this year, or here's what's happening. And he would seem to sort of gather the community around him before he went to city council to make his request. And as a result of that, there were very few councillors who wanted to take him on about the police budget. And I think that there was a buy-in from the community, that that's something they said, you know, this is something that costs money, we recognize it costs money, uh, you know, and that's money we're willing to spend. And I think that that's appropriate. But uh, there are other phenomena, though, uh, happening right now in Toronto. If you drive around in the neighborhoods, there are all kinds of private cops. They have uh, the cars that look just like police cars and mm -hmm. uh, the, the guys who look just like police officers. I, I had heard a study about how in the United States now there are more private uh, privately funded cops than there are publicly funded ones. Uh, and we're seeing those kinds of things, which which are sort of scary to me. And maybe I'm I may have been brainwashed somewhat by the by the police, but uh, I like the idea that they get a lot of training when they go out with those guns. And uh, to send out other folks who don't have that kind of training, who are making minimum wage, uh, is somewhat unsettling to me. Does that tell us something though about the the general public uh, attitude towards crime? If you've got enough people willing to pay enough money to hire private police. Um, although the body politic as a whole isn't willing to put that money forward. doesn't Shouldn't that be a wake-up call for us? Or a wake-up call for the politicians, maybe? But it's like any kind of uh, government services that those who can afford them would like more. Uh, you know, and it's the same with policing. Well, some people might just view it as the solution to the problem. Done. Period. Um, I see nothing wrong with the concept of private police per se. Of course, these police would have to meet some kind of government-set regulations. Mm -hmm. They must operate under the authority of government law mm -hmm. and government uh, authority. Mm -hmm. to, to say that police are private does not put them in another realm in that respect. But you know, to look at the broader picture of funding, it, it's unfortunate that someone like Mr. Fantino has to be, in part, a politician because he has to appeal to a political process to get money rather than to be able to tie that income directly to results that he can show or to mm -hmm. to a product that he can offer the community and uh, as soon as you've got politics involved in anything there's going to be all kinds of inequities and you're going to have opinions flying back and forth i'm not really of the belief that we have to spend more money on police i think the police have a major obstacle in their way and it's called our justice system mm -hmm. Uh, they may apprehend and catch a lot of criminals, but the justice system turns them out without rehabilitating them. Uh, maybe too soon, they don't serve their sentence, and so many people are repeat offenders. What do you do with that? The police can go out and arrest them again and arrest them again. Which they do. And which, which they do, and that just creates more of a shortage. I think you, we would save a bit of money, maybe, on the other end of the equation. And uh, not to mention issues like, uh, as we discussed before, the broken window theory. Mm -hmm. Um, looking after uh, 
um, small issues before they become large ones. In fact, I saw on TVO interviewed, um, I don't remember his name, but he was the former uh, equivalent of New York's chief of police. Mm -hmm. And he was on for about 60 or 90 minutes on TVO one night discussing that very thing, the broken window theory. And what impressed me most about his approach was he said, we wanted to be active police and clean up the streets, so to speak, without becoming a police state. Mm -hmm. And he said that was the, the incredible thing they had to watch for. They could not be stepping on people's liberties. And again, what they really have to do in a case like that to clean up the so-called streets is to clearly define property rights. Who owns that street? Same mm -hmm. issue we talked about last week. Yeah. So these things keep coming back to haunt us, and uh, the police are unfortunately in the middle of the cut both ways, really. Summer and Matt's on left, right, and center this morning. Uh, the lines are open at 643-1290, star-1290 on the Cantel. If you have any comments, you'd like to join our discussion about policing today and where we perhaps should be looking in the future, you give us a call at 643-1290, or if you're a Cantel customer, star-1290 on the Cantel Network. Bob Metz and Jeff Schlemmer, my guests, as they are every Wednesday in the final hour of our program. Left, right, and center is what we call it. Some days uh, they go at each other pretty good, hammer and tongs on issues. Other days, like today, we're just kind of sharing our thoughts and... Uh, and, uh, and feelings about uh, an issue, and uh, today we're talking about policing and the role of policing in our community. Bob, you alluded a moment or two ago to the fact that uh, the problem with the uh, police service may not be that there's not enough budget. It's that we're asking them to do things that are unreasonable in that, as you say, we ask them to arrest and re-arrest and re-arrest and re-arrest the same people all too often because the rest of the system fails. Um, one of the things I'm, I'm fond of putting you guys on the spot with, and I've done it before, is to say, okay, let's, let's not theorize here, though. Let's deal with the reality of today. How do we deal with today's reality? Um, given that it doesn't look like the legal system is going to change a lot in the next 24 hours, um, is there any alternative to just simply giving them more money, hiring more officers, and trying to meet the challenge that way? Well, so, some, some systems have done that. For example, uh, well, here's another issue, gun control, for example. Uh, Kennesaw, Georgia, I think back uh, about 10 or 15 years ago, did a turnabout. Uh, they made it legal, they made it law that every private citizen had to own a gun in the mm -hmm. house and had to be trained to use it. And their robbery rate dropped 60% in the first year. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think what, what the real, the, the reality of being out there is that you don't really have police, quote, protection. What you have mostly is police recourse, which is all the law can do. Mm -hmm. They can go out and find somebody who's already done you wrong and see if you can somehow address that wrong and set it right. Protection is ultimately left up to the individual, which is why the right to self-defense is so vitally important. And now we have police going around arresting people for simply owning things like guns. Mm -hmm. uh, to me, that's self-defeating. Uh, you know, I've seen a lot of reports. You can count all the statistics you want about how many innocent children might get hit, uh, killed by a handgun or whatever. But I think there's more and more thought coming out that that private gun ownership is preventing an avalanche of crime. And yet it's the, the police are the ones who are strong supporters of gun control. They're the ones saying we don't want people to Well, that's why I guns. say it's self-defeating. It's self-defeating to them to be a supporter of gun control. They should instead encourage responsible ownership of guns or, uh, you know, that people should be trained. And, and there's nothing wrong with certain regulations in the story. But wouldn't they, a, a gun owner of my acquaintance made the point the other day uh, that he was kind of chopped off at the police attitudes towards this. But he said, but on the other hand, you have to appreciate that a guy like Julian Fantino, who's very outspoken in support of gun gun restrictions. He said, ultimately, I'm sure he'd like to see nobody with a gun because his men would be that much safer. 
And on that level, he's probably right. Well, Jim, will... now I've got to come back to you. Let's come back to the real world, the way things really are. Good point. Okay. And it's just not that way. You can, you can fantasize about having a, a society free of guns, but what that generally means, and I know this is repeated over and over again, it means that the criminals are going to have the guns and the innocent people aren't. Mm -hmm. um, I have never owned a gun in my life. I have not seen a need for one yet. But should that need ever arise where I felt that unsafe in my society, as some of my relatives do in Miami, by mm -hmm. the way, yes. uh, you're going to own a handgun, and you don't want somebody to tell you you don't have the right because you know the police can't get there in time to defend you. Yeah. The, the final line is you. But I think the police so. are on the right track, though. That clearly, if you compare Canada to the United States, uh, you know, you could say that in Canada, only the bad guys have guns if it's restricted and all that stuff, but realistically, most of them don't. They don't feel the need to. We sort of escalated things because everybody's got them and up they go. That you can have two examples of a society well, where never found one, the criminals have got way more that, guns than that, the other. That does. big a gun society, I right. don't think it's that much of a problem here. I have. Yeah. I think that has a lot more to do with our culture than with gun ownership. I don't really think for capital-wise, there are that fewer gun well, owners in culture, Canada than anywhere else. Culture raises something that I find really interesting, and that is that uh, the police are really uh, very few, as we've said, in numbers compared to our society, and uh, it seems to me that the, the best way that people go about keeping uh, law and order and keeping people following laws is making sure the laws mirror public opinion, mm -hmm. and that's something where sometimes they get away from. I look at, at uh, speeding, for instance, and like realistically, virtually everybody on the 401 speeds. Mm -hmm. You know, It's just not a law that's widely accepted, although sometimes I think, yeah, but if we raise the speed limit, would we all go another 20 kilometers an hour higher than the new limit. I don't know. But uh, it seems like where the government gets into passing laws that don't have broad public support or, or where the police have big problems, where there are laws that are that people basically by and large agree with, they don't need the police in the sense that people don't feel like breaking these laws anyway. It's interesting to me, too, uh, and you, you referred to, to Georgia there and, and that, that statute. I want to ask each of you guys, which scenario you think ultimately you would be safer within? And there's an obvious answer, but I'm not sure that maybe there's not a less obvious answer. Would you rather live in a society where everyone had a gun or where no one had the gun except the worst of the criminals? Which I would put to you is probably where we are in Canada today. Criminals do have guns, but your average everyday street variety criminal, although it's changing, I understand. Now, traditionally, your average street criminal in Canada didn't have guns. It was only the real hard cases. In which of those two societies are you less likely to be a victim of a, of a weapon? Given that the police have guns. Well, the police have guns as well. Well, I would say the latter. You can't, you can't argue with that, but that doesn't speak to the issue of the right of gun ownership and the right to self-defense. Um, sure, I mean, how can, how can you say if there were no guns in the world, we'd... No, no, but know, I'm not saying no guns. I'm well, saying a society where the police have guns and where the, where the worst of the bad guys have guns but nobody else does, vis-a-vis -a, -vis a society where everybody has guns. This almost comes back to the scenario with the uh, biker gangs, you know, and, and I suppose to some extent organized crime where it seems like the worst of the worst have the weapons and so on, but they tend to use them mostly against each other. Uh, occasionally, you know, a kid get walking by uh, mm -hmm. a vehicle gets blown up or whatever, but uh, it, 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 there's something unsavory about that, but realistically it's a lot safer for the average person. Yeah, I, I would have to agree in that sense, but again, um, uh, it's a tough call, really, because if, if you live in a society where everyone has a gun and, and there aren't any ba bad in incidents, what's the problem? I mean, that's largely what it was like in the Old West, uh, despite all the mythology we have about the West. You mm -hmm. know, people did not go into a town shooting up the town. Mm -hmm. You'd be knocked off by the first six-year-old because he had a gun. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I don't think that they had that, you know, it just didn't happen. We see, we have so much mythology about guns, you know, and, and a lot of it that most people's concern relates to is carelessness. I remember reading an editorial once uh, in the United States, and it, and it made the case that the, uh, the reason it was important to have guns available for everybody in the United States was to protect them from government. Oh, yeah, uh, that's, and a, I don't that's <laughs> a fundamental issue as well, because, uh, 
you know, traditionally, and this, this is true in every nation, the, the greatest oppressor of its peoples is not an outside agency like a foreign government. That's not very very much the frequency. The frequency is your own government Indeed, yes. oppresses you. And I guess and, this, like, this uh, was all passed at the time of the revolution when, mm -hmm. when the Americans were breaking I mean, away from it's England. It's a common story that, for example, people were disarmed in, in Germany as Hitler came to power. They had extremely strict gun controls, particularly for certain groups, so they couldn't defend themselves. It made it easier for the state to move in. Well, and there's some... So that, you, sorry, go ahead. Well, I'm just saying, ultimately, that is fundamental to the American Constitution. The right to bear arms is that ultimate citizen protection against an oppressive government. Yeah, I was going to say too that one of the one of the precursors of that, of course, was the was the billeting of uh, both American and or American slash British and foreign troops on uh, on American citizens, and they had no recourse to that. A man mm -hmm. would arrive at your door with a piece of paper and said, "I'm living here for the next six months, and you're going to feed me." And he had a gun and you didn't. Now, the idea wasn't that if you had a gun, you would have shot him on the spot. But the idea was that because they had all the guns and you didn't, um, it was, a, it was an, an opportunity for government tyranny. And that was, that was one of the precursors that, that led to, that, to their concern about it. There were others, but that was one of the major ones that I think we can maybe relate to today. If, uh, if a, a soldier showed up at your door with a gun and said, uh, you know, uh, I'm here representing the armed members of your community and you're going to look after me now you can start to see how that mindset would develop to say that the only ultimate protection I have is if I and all my friends are armed as well, so that is not that advantage then does not accrue to this to this other individual. But it's led them down a very, very dicey path south of the board. Well, in Canada, we don't, uh, we don't have anything like that. When I think about it now, I think that people, by and large, don't feel threatened by government. They don't feel threatened by the police, that the police are, by and large, respected in our communities. Mm -hmm. You know, there are, there are incidents that occur that, where there are bad things that happen. But, by and large, there's a lot of buy-in, which I think distinguishes us from a, a more police type of state where people feel oppressed. Although, having said that, I think every time if I'm driving down the road and there's a, and there's a, a police car around, I always feel vaguely guilty about something. <laughs> I don't know what it is. Well, isn't that interesting, though? And because, because I do, too, and I noticed it yesterday. I was driving yesterday. I was driving home, and I had to I'd take my mother-in-law out for dinner. We were coming home, and it's a hot day. Um, my car was in for service. I had another car that wasn't air-conditioned. Um, she doesn't... The heat is not the best for her, and I was concerned about getting her home quickly. And a uh, police car in the rearview mirror. And I, like, just as you say, Jeff, it's kind of like... Oh, well, geez, I hope he doesn't pull me over. I want to get home. You know, you start thinking, well, why would he pull you over? You're not doing anything. But we do have that kind of, that ingrained sense there. That That's because we're sometimes, I think, a lot of people don't feel confident in knowing the law or knowing what their rights are and things like that. Mm -hmm. and, and so often a police officer or somebody from the government, doesn't have to be a police, you know, tells you you don't have the right to do this, or you, you, you don't know what your rights are. There's so many laws, you might be breaking an infraction without knowing about mm -hmm. it. Yeah, that's right. And there's this tremendous sense of uncertainty. That's why the more laws you have, I think the less civilized you are. You have to have just a basic framework of laws. And, and uh, I think it's important that uh, the administrators of that law stay more true to the spirit than to the letter. When we return, I'm going to ask my two guests how they feel about the OPP and what happened up at Ipperwash and whether this push for an inquiry is warranted, whether that's another area where the police need to be investigated. We'll continue with this additional Left, Right and Center. Of course, you're always welcome to join us at 643-1290. It's Left, Right and Center with Bob Metz and Jeff Schlemmer. I've been talking about police this morning, uh, kind of uh, uh, prompted by the fact that our police chief is leaving. Guys, I want to ask you about the policing at the provincial level and this, uh, this outcry for an inquiry into the slaying of Dudley George. Um, there was a court case in which uh, Sergeant Dean was found uh, guilty of negligence, I believe, was the final... Uh, was Criminal that negligence, causing, causing death. Causing death. 
uh, was put on restricted duty and so on. Some people felt there should have been a jail term. Other people, particularly people in the police community, felt that he was railroaded and scapegoated by the government. Um, the government has steadfastly refused to open uh, the doors into this case. Their, their, their claim is it's not appropriate to do so until all the various legal ramifications and cases have been settled and civil cases and everything else. There are many people in our community who believe that, that the uh, credibility of the OPP has been, in, has been impugned, including many people in the OPP, may I say, uh, and that it's been, this has happened at the behest of the provincial government. And I'd like to ask both of you guys for any insights you may have or your opinion about that. A, do we need uh, 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 an inquiry into what happened with Dudley George? And B, uh, if we do, why aren't we getting it now? And, and Bob, I'll well, start with you. Generally, I find inquiries to be a public event, not really an instrument of justice. And although I very strongly believe that police should be held accountable for their actions, I think that is done through those other means that you mentioned, through the, through the courts, through the lawsuits, and all that sort of thing. Having an inquiry after that means that most of the issues will have already been settled. And so why, what is the purpose of stirring it all up again? Um, that's what I question is the whole process. It just seems to me to be some form of public relations because we're dealing with a sensitive community. And um, that's really what's going on as far as the inquiry stage goes, as, as I see it. As far as I can tell, the, the inquiry would have li very little to do with the police. The inquiry is strictly about the government's role, and the reason for that is that uh, the, the police role has been thoroughly canvassed. But this is a good example of where you put the police into a situation that's a political situation uh, that, that shouldn't be uh, a police issue. Like in, in the case of Ipperwash, of course, there was no emergency, no reason to send in a SWAT team, but we had a new government, and they were determined to, to as these documents are trickling out over time, it becomes apparent that the government were de determined to show a tough face in relation to native issues uh, and you send in a SWAT team and a SWAT team is a blunt instrument that, that is very often very messy and you send them into emergency situations like hostage takings where you know it's the only uh, instrument available um, but I think the OPP were railroaded as well. I think they were sent into a situation that they should never have had to go into. And that that's the reason we need the inquiry is because the government have never been forthcoming about what their role was. That they say they didn't do this and didn't do that. And then six months later, a document is uh, released under the Freedom of Information stuff. And it's this constant leak of documents showing that the government have never been honest. And uh, again, even from the start, the... the, the Native community were not criticizing uh, that specific officer. They were saying, you know, somebody ordered this guy to go into a horrible situation at midnight in the dark, uh, you know, amongst the smoke and everything else. It was not surprising that somebody was going to get hurt. That was inevitable. Uh, there was certainly criticism about other aspects of what the police did. Beating up the band counselor was, was a real bad thing. But I think that uh, the OPP, as far as the way they responded to it, acted quite appropriately. One thing they did was immediately brought in Gwen Boniface as regional commander, and her expertise had been in na dealing with Native issues from the start. Uh, now she's become the commissioner of the whole OPP. Uh, I think the police took it very seriously, but it was a good example of where policing powers were misused by a government for a political end, and that's why we need an inquiry. 643-1290 is the telephone number, star 1290 on the Cantel. We're going to go to the phones now, and we have uh, caller Jim with us. Good morning, Jim. Yeah, good morning, guys. I find it interesting that the Premier is backpedaling, and if I had been the Premier and some media type shoved a microphone in my face the day after saying, did I know about it? I would have said, no about it, I authorized it. Do you really believe that the, pr the President of the United States didn't know that the FBI were going into Waco, that he was that stupid? Of course he knew, and so did the Premier. And he should have had the courage and all the other things required to say, I knew about it, I authorized it, I was elected by the people of this province to enforce the laws, and I'm doing that. And that would have been the end of it. Uh, yeah, probably. 
There's no probably about it. But now he's back skating, trying to weasel his way out of the corner uh, for, for lying. He should have had the, the gumption to tell the truth. We elected him to be the premier of this country. I mean, look at, look at Trudeau. He's in the FLQ in. I mean, these are what our leaders are for. And now, of course, they're backpedaling. We have this inquiry. All he had to do was say, I lied, I knew about it, I authorized it, yada, yada, yada. But that's not going to happen. Do we need an inquiry at this point? Is there any purpose to it? No, I don't think so, myself, personally. You don't think that an inquiry might force him to uh, to tell us the truth? Well, I, I, I agree with what Bob says. I don't think an inquiry's main focus is justice. An inquiry's main focus is a McLean emphasis, just to appease everybody. And thanks for the call Bye -bye. today. Appreciate it. 643-1290, star-1290 on the Cantel. Uh, I want to change our focus yet again to the larger picture of the RCMP, since we are talking about police today. Um, RCMP, of course, involved in immigration issues and uh, national issues, and particularly drug issues. Uh, some people have suggested that uh, while this has been seen around the world as an exemplary force, that there's too much emphasis. Again, Bob, to come back to your concern about drugs, that the RCMP have a number of other mandates that are, that are not being addressed as effectively as they might, because they spend so much of their time, effort, and energy on uh, pursuing quote with large quote criminals that in the minds of many aren't really criminals at all um do you have a different view of the rcmp than the opp or the local police for example do they have a bigger problem because of that legislation? not in principle really it's just their jurisdiction that's different in the level of government that they deal at but but to speak to something like drug laws one of, one of the insidious things about such laws is that Drug, drugs are an easy solution if you're just going to bust into somebody's house and bust them. You can show the public the results, you know, and, and every fall you'll find the police flying around in helicopters mm -hmm. uh, and big, big news story, you know, all the marijuana they found in this field and that field. And yeah. sure enough, people are given this impression, oh, the police are doing something. They're showing us results for their actions. Meantime, the real crimes that you really want to see them working on aren't reported. You don't really hear the results of a lot of them. You don't know if any of them are resolved, whether people are being uh, properly uh, put through the system. Uh, I think it begs a larger question that of what we expect from our police and what kind of laws we should have in the first place. Again, I come back to the thing that I think that the proper role of a police officer is to protect life and property. Um, I know there was one police officer, not here in Canada, but in, in the United States, who was featured on 60 Minutes one time because he refused. At a, it was actually a tourist resort. He refused to bus people for even uh, doing things like cocaine, mm -hmm. as long as they did it in the privacy of their home. If you caught him in the street, sorry, mm -hmm. you're going, you're going, you know. Yeah. But he, he saw that invading a home, even for something he may strongly disagree with, was initiating force, was not being a peace officer, but suddenly becoming a, quote, police in the Iron Curtain country sense mm -hmm. of the word. Mm -hmm. And uh, and this created a, a just a, quite a controversy for a while, and I, I haven't heard whatever happened to him since then, and that's another story that perhaps should be told. Well, of course, they elect him down there, and that's a big difference, yeah. uh, the sheriffs. I remember uh, Hunter Thompson apparently was almost elected uh, as <laughs> sheriff in uh, Aspen he lives in. Yeah. Yeah. That would have been an interesting twist. <laughs> well, Jeff, let me ask you about that, uh, the difference between, as Bob says, the, a peace officer, which in Canada particularly has been the tradition, versus a police officer, um, and which many of us would, would associate more with a totalitarian regime, the so-called police state. In 1998 in Canada, can, can a peace officer do the job? 
I think that by and large they can, and I think, again, it's because we have a society that's largely law-abiding, and if we didn't, our police wouldn't be able to do much about it anyway. Um, but it does sort of feed into the question of being proactive, that the police are conscious of this responsive nature of their job and that they are trying to be more uh, aware of sort of issues in the community and also doing investigation for things that may take years to lead to fruition. Um, but it's interesting talking about the RCMP. One of the big frustrations I know that they've experienced is that historically they looked after white-collar crime. And and white-collar crime has basically been abandoned as an area of enforcement by the police because they can't afford to do it. Uh, they can't even afford to hire the forensic accountants that they need to go through the books to find out where the money went or what went wrong or whatever. And there was a big article in McLean's about it last year, I recall, and they, they said, you know, that Canada's becoming a haven now for white-collar criminals because they realize that uh, the police just don't have the resources to, to do it. And they talked to a number of uh, former senior RCMP investigators who had been doing white-collar crime who said they left to go, to go work in private accounting firms because they can make twice as much money. And one of the things that, that was a big eye-opener for me in coming onto the police board was there are these choices. It's not as simple as saying there are laws, please go and enforce them because they, they can't enforce them all. And you're always making choices about which one's the worst, which is the one we should be doing the most about. Uh, and that's a tough thing for society to accept, I think, but, but that's the reality we live in. Well, isn't there an argument to be made that uh, ultimately the society is probably going to suffer more from white-collar crime going unpunished than from the occasional individual smoking a joint of marijuana? We're talking billions of dollars every year, and, and we're all paying for it. Yeah. No question about it. Yeah, and that's a tough one. Uh, the other issue sort of raised for me uh, as we were talking about it was the question of the way that we do oversee our police in the states where, in a sense, we're very different from the Americans. You know, we do have a police board who are appointed by mm -hmm. the government of the day. We don't elect uh, sheriffs. Uh, in the United States, there's a much stronger tradition of local authority where each county may have a, a police force of its own, a small force. We tend to have uh, larger regional forces. We've got our provincial force, which is becoming stepping in to do policing in a lot of places where they used to be small town places. And I sometimes wonder about the differences between a, lo a small town electing its sheriff, uh, the Andy Griffith uh, mm -hmm. of Mayberry style, versus uh, sort of a, a centralized police force like the OPP, and, and what some of the differences are. I don't really know that much about it, but, but they're very, very different. The plus for many, many people say the plus is that uh, with the local organization is it is very locally uh, oriented and familiar with the community. The downside is the Americans have seen many times to their chagrin is that it is it can be easy for shall we say unscrupulous individuals to seize and hold that power too and seize it and hold it through intimidation and that can be a problem as well. We're going to pause for a moment or two when we come back. We'll take a look at London's situation. The police chief is going. The fire chief is going. Some people have suggested maybe it's time for a commissioner of public safety. Maybe we don't need a chief per se in the old sense at all. We'll talk about that with Schlemmer and Metz right after this. I'm Matt and Jeff Schlemmer with us on Left, Right and Center. Just a few minutes left on the show today. We've been talking about police issues. It has been suggested that with the uh, uh, resignation of Julian Fantino and the upcoming, uh, res well, a resignation, but he'll be here for a little while, of Gary Weiss, the police chief, that maybe it's time for us to institute a, perhaps, a commission of public safety, um, uh, perhaps analogous to the police board, but led by a, uh, by a, uh, a commissioner similar to the other departmental commissioners at City Hall that would oversee the administrative aspects, and you would have a, you might still have a chief of police or a fire chief, or they might be a deputy chief or something, um, that the role that the police chief, as an example now, of both administrator and police officer, uh, that perhaps though it's time to separate those two. Jeff, do you have any thoughts on that? Do you think that would, is there any merit in that? Well, apparently they've done that, and I know that uh, Ben Veal had been interested in pursuing that and had done some research, and it's either Sault Ste. Marie or Thunder Bay, I believe, who have done that, but I, I, I just, this sort of comes back to this whole debate about whether bigger is always better or not, and uh, my understanding is that with the merger, they haven't really saved that much money. 
Uh, and there's some question, I guess, again, about the uh, the expertise of the top person. You know, you're going to have somebody who's either got a fire background or a policing background. Although one thing that it's always seemed to me is that there should be even more collaboration between the police, the fire, and the ambulance than there mm-hmm. is. And one good example of that for me is that in London, we're lucky enough to have those light changers at every uh, every traffic light. When the fire trucks come through, they've got those strobe lights which change the lights, so they've always got a green. Mm-hmm. The police don't have access to that, and it just drives me crazy because <laughs> I think, you know, why not? These mm-hmm. guys need it. And I'm told there are technical reasons. I for, for me, in this day and age, it's like, give me a break. With the computerization, that could easily happen. And same well, for the ambulance. Well, the technical reason might be the budget. <laughs> mm-hmm. But again, yeah. Toronto can't afford that. They don't have the... And the expensive part, as I understand, are the things that go on the lights themselves. And it's already there. The strobe lights aren't expensive. Yeah, and, and again, why ambulances don't have that, to me, is just crazy. Uh, so there are those kinds of issues where there could be much better service delivered. As far as how much savings there are, I don't know. But again, uh, the idea of merging into a big organization, to me, it's not always clear that's cheaper. Bob? I'm. Uh, I have no. It depends what you mean by administration. If you're talking about a, a department that issues, say, the payroll checks and does all the government remittances and mm-hmm. all that sort of stuff, there's no problem with one agency doing that. But I think the role of police chief and even fire chief are distinct enough, or should be, that they shouldn't be combined. I think that waters down both of them to each of their detriments. Mm-hmm. Um, I certainly think that someone who rises to the top of an organization should have somehow gone through it, like through through the ranks, in order to, if nothing else, gain the respect of, of mm-hmm. subordinates. Um, uh, just, there was just too much involved in human nature to just make it an, a simple administrative matter. Look I, at I, the armed forces when they merged those back in the 60s. Yeah. And I, I, I was just thinking of that. You know, <laughs> I, what a disaster that was. Yeah. Um, I'd like to see it the old way again myself there, too. Well, I think we're moving in that direction, although whether we have enough of military left to make it worthwhile making a final change remains <laughs> yeah. to be seen. So all in all, uh, just a quick sketch, how effective has Fantino been, Bob? Well, he certainly perceived it being effective for myself. I know that today I have less police, quote, response than what I was used to 10 or 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. So does that, do I judge him on that level? Or do I have to take into account other circumstances that maybe I don't even know about, the constraints he's had put on him, um, a lot of the things that I might want to blame him for are in his fault. Mm-hmm. Um, without knowing the specifics, I, I, I really wouldn't want to uh, <laughs> go out slandering anybody <laughs> on things that I don't know about. Jeffrey, but, what about yourself? I think that he's been very effective, and I, I'm somebody who came to uh, the police board with some some skepticism about him because of his public image of being a strong, you know, uh, law and order, crack, crack the whip, kind of right-wingish view of law. And uh, But getting to see the work that he did, though, I was very impressed. And there are a lot of things that he did sort of behind the scenes at the police force as far as sort of uh, a lot of administrative changes that were brought in, a lot of procedural and policy types of changes that people don't even widely appreciate that really dramatically improved the efficiency of that force. And I think that it's true that there is in some ways less policing available for us when we when we dial 911 now than there used to be but I don't think that it's something within the chief's control I think that he's done what he can and certainly he was brought to town to uh, to do that he was brought to town specifically to increase their profile and he sure did that uh, and I think he grew That's a lot sure. in that role as well I think that uh, we have sort of uh, seasoned him to move on to his other uh, greater roles Thank you, gentlemen. Always a pleasure. And uh, Schlemmer and Metz will be back next Wednesday in the last uh, hour of the Wednesday program. Eddie Matthews sitting in for me next week, but I'm sure you'll be joining Eddie for the programming as well. And don't miss Bob and Jeff. I do want to mention very quickly uh, some thanks to our good friends at the Nerds on Site, who are the official uh, computer uh, backup people and suppliers for Talk of the Town. Uh, they help keep us on the air here and uh, certainly help us with the research and so on that we do through the Internet and all our use of computers here. So thanks to the Nerds on Site.
Don't forget this Saturday on Ask the Experts. Uh, it is Izanga and Peerless, the two mics from the law firm of Siskin, Cromerty, Ivy, and Dollar, and Peter and Tim Inch from Laurentian Sons will be in for hour number two of Ask the Experts. Also, I will remind you of the Don Van Massenhoven uh, Celebrity Ball Game. That's next weekend, but I'm going to be out there, and we invite you to come out to the... Uh, uh, to the auction on Friday night and the game on Saturday night. We're going to have a lot of fun, and we want you to be part of it, too. And I'm going to go and drive my big silver Lincoln all over town this afternoon. Actually, I'm not. i got to come back to work. But I'm going to drive it to lunch anyway. So you folks have a great day. Uh, we will see you tomorrow on uh, on Talk of the Town. Tomorrow we've got uh, Ron Gray, the head of the Christian Heritage Party. Um, oh, we've got a whole bunch of stuff. So you join us for the Thursday edition of Talk of the Town, won't you? Um, for Bob, for Jeff, for Ryan. For Tara, who's got one of those terrible summer colds and we all feel sorry for. It's Jim saying, because she wants us to, it's Jim saying, please take care of each other, mind how you go, and we'll see you tomorrow for the next edition of Talk of the Town. Bye now.